Almost everyone at some point in their lives has been disappointed in the church. Uh, And I mean really, like really, almost catastrophically disappointed. Not just faintly dissatisfied with things like like the occasional sermon uh, or music. I mean completely turned off by hypocrisy uh, or rocked by scandal. Uh, And this applies, I, I would say, to people both inside and outside the church. Uh, Many people never consider Christianity, will never attend church because of the horror stories they've heard from the outside. Uh, But the people within the church can actually be even more hurt by the disappointments because, you know, we we stand closer to the fire. Uh, So things like division and infighting can undermine and undo so much good work uh, and so many good reputations. Uh, Sexual abuse scandals destroy legacies not to mention the pain inflicted on an untold number of victims uh, and their families. Uh, Historical matters can even leave us ashamed of Christianity's legacy when we think of wars uh, and abuses carried out uh, supposedly in God's name. And so how should we view church and Christianity uh, in light of this stuff, the bad stuff? Uh, In front of our friends, should we distance ourselves from Christianity or the church uh, and the face of public Christianity so that our friends and family won't be turned off Christ uh, by the embarrassments of the church and the establishment? Uh, For our own spiritual health, should we even prefer a private faith so that we can't be hurt by God's own people? Is it safer to never take the risk of getting close uh, because the risk of uh, getting hurt is too great? Well, the Bible doesn't leave us rudderless uh, when it comes to navigating this stuff. Uh, Consistently in the Bible, we find a word that is honest, uh, warts and all, uh, a word that is even critical uh, about the people that God has chosen. Uh, But in its honesty, it's important to note the Bible is not only critical, uh, it is also optimistic uh, because God has a plan for growth, uh, which means You know, growth means growing pains, uh, but growth also means hope uh, and much good fruit. So in our reading today, Jesus tells three parables that describe uh, this positive, hopeful growth. uh, And one of those three also describes some of the negative stuff, and we'll talk about that. Uh, I'm going to start by outlining the similarities in the points that that all three parables have, but then we're going to give more time and detail to the parable that Jesus gives more time and detail to. Uh, Because the parable of the wheat and the weeds does take an honest and critical, uh, but also a hopeful look at some of the curlier realities of God's growing kingdom. So there's three. Three similarities, uh, at least, across all three of the parables. All three parables, Jesus tells, begin with something small uh, that is hidden uh, and it grows. So first of all, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. Good seed, but seeds are small. Uh, And the seed is buried, it's sowed into the ground uh, or lost in the field uh, and yet it grows. Uh, And we all know, it turns out by the end of the parable that uh, this seed specifically is wheat. And probably we can all picture, you know, wheat with a stalk and then a bunch of other seeds. It started as one and then there's more and more come out. 
Second parable is this, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Jesus says it's, you know, it's the smallest seed you can probably think of. There's smaller seeds, but, you know, it's round, it's distinctive, it's, it's common to people's uh, minds, famously small. And in fact, Jesus highlights uh, that he uses the picture because of the mustard seed's smallness, and it too is sowed into soil, and it grows into a tree. Uh, and the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, or yeast. You use just a small amount uh, or a starter. Uh, It's buried or hidden, folded into measures of flour and it grows or spreads throughout the whole batch of dough and as we all know that dough then itself will continue to rise. And Jesus tells each of these parables to describe, he says, the kingdom of heaven. Each time the kingdom of heaven is like uh, and as we've said, uh, you know, I've titled our title slide, says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, Jesus uses interchangeably. Uh, it's the same thing. So Jesus tells each of these parables to describe the kingdom of heaven, uh, but they also perfectly demonstrate to us the power and wisdom of God, who is the king of that kingdom. Uh, they give us his eyes to perceive beauty and greatness in things that are small uh, and the ability to see power in things uh, that appear weak and things that are done in secret. So first, I'm going to talk about this small element. Uh, The Bible shows a pattern of God choosing small and insignificant things to prove his own glory. That becomes really relevant, really practical, really close to home in this passage in 1 Corinthians. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's you. Uh, If you're a Christian, it is not because you're better or cleverer or more perceptive or richer than anyone else. Uh, In in fact, if you're a Christian, it might even be the opposite. It might be because you're not any of those things. God has chosen you because it's in His nature to do impressive things with not very much. He made, uh, for instance, in the beginning, the world from nothing. He chose the nation of Israel in spite of that nation's size and strength. He chose David, a boy, to bring down a giant and unite a nation. He chose Mary, a teenage girl, to carry and raise his own perfect son. He used Jesus a first-century, poor, Galilean carpenter to save billions of souls and to change the world. And he used Jesus' suffering and death uh, to accomplish just that, which brings us to the point of things that are hidden. Notice that each of the three small things Jesus begins his parable with are are hidden or buried or, or lost in some respect. The seed of wheat is scattered into a great field, Uh, Once it gets, you know, watered in or whatever, you you can't even see it. 
Uh, The mustard seed is hidden and buried in the ground. He specifically uses the word hidden to describe the leaven or the yeast that's been folded and worked into the dough. And notice that each of these three things experience a period of waiting. Our plants don't spring up immediately. It takes days, sometimes weeks. And in the meantime, something like faith before you see any evidence of their growth. Even dough, which rises much quicker, doesn't seem to expand as you watch it, does it? You need to walk away for at least 10 minutes to come back and go, whoa, it's puffy now, it's changed. And again, I think we see a pattern of God's wisdom playing uh, not only through the parables, but all through the scriptures and and being fulfilled in God's own son, uh, the king of the kingdom. In particular, we're drawn, as, as I highlighted with the kids before, we're drawn to Jesus' death. We're like a seed. His lifeless body was planted in a tomb, were hidden in the earth. And where he waited dead, really properly dead, for three days while his followers actually lost hope. And from where he emerged, new uh, and alive, a hope fulfilled, the promise of fruit still to come, and a king who has conquered death. But a king uh, who was easy to miss. Uh, he was, in his lifetime, he was mostly despised. Uh, he was a disappointment to many, an irritation to a lot as well. He was counted an, an enemy. Uh, he, he could only be appreciated in his day by the people who God gave special sight to. Uh, people who were mostly uneducated and suffering in one way or another, in many cases even literally blind, were given the sight to see who it was that he is. And then all these things grow. Uh, Like the seeds or the yeast in the parable, God's kingdom would grow. In fact, even that little note uh, between the the parables and the explanation, it it talks about uh, how he would speak in parables uh, things that were hidden, but things that will be revealed. Uh, And so in Jesus' method of teaching, as well as in the message that he was teaching, he's showing how things are hidden and secret, but they will be revealed. Uh, Faith uh, will produce its results. Uh, It won't be dissatisfied or disappointed. And so there will be growth. God's kingdom would grow. And from the time of Jesus, just to think of the 2,000 years that have passed between then and now, Jesus is now known in every country on earth. Even if his church remains small or persecuted or secret. But perhaps the most fascinating window, if we break down the 2,000 years, just to the first 300 or so, just a, just a crash course in 300 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' church grew hidden right under the nose of the Roman Empire. Uh, For the first 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the movement that he started was barely noticed by the Romans. Uh, In their eyes, it was just one other Jewish sect uh, that produced occasional troublemakers. Within that same 30 years, however, God's uh, young church uh, was often persecuted by Jewish authorities uh, and Jewish peers. In 64 AD, so this is about 30 years after Jesus, a fire broke out in Rome. Maybe you've heard about the great fire of Rome. It destroyed something like two-thirds of the city. There was a rumour that it was the Emperor Nero who started the fire uh, because he wanted to clear way for a new palace or a new building project. 
And so to deflect the rumours away from himself, Nero blamed the Christians for starting the fire. And that was the first uh, imperially supervised persecution of Christians. And for the next 200 years, as emperors came and went, Christians were persecuted and killed and sometimes ignored. But quietly and not so quietly, the church grew as Christians overcame negative press with neighbourly love. And in the year 312, the emperor himself, Constantine, converted to Christianity. Now, we, don't, we can't be crystal clear on whether or not Constantine's conversion was genuine and heartfelt, or whether it was politically motivated. Uh, but you can trace in 300 years a trajectory and explosion that you couldn't have predicted at the start unless you had an unwavering faith in God's power to fulfil his own purposes and to grow and advance his kingdom. Now, the conversion of Constantine was not, is not, will never be the high point of Christian advancement or or the growth of God's kingdom. Uh, That is still to come. Uh, That serves only as, uh, in the scheme of things, a very small illustration, but a pretty powerful one, I think, of how things uh, were overturned really through neighbourly, brotherly love and affection as people looked out for one another, loved their enemies, cared for children and orphans, uh, and the influence of God's church grew. But let's spend some more time on the parable Jesus spends the most time on, the first one, uh, the one with the wheat. Uh, Because in that parable, Jesus gives more realistic detail uh, that explains many of the uh, disappointing realities that we sometimes see in the church, uh, in uh, the current version of God's kingdom. Uh, In that parable, like the others, the small thing, the seed, is hidden and it grows. Uh, But the crop is sabotaged by his enemy, uh, who sows weeds in the crop overnight. And the sabotage isn't discovered until well after the shoots have emerged. And as you know, many plants look the same when they're tiny. Even different ones look the same as each other when they're small. Uh, It's only as they mature that you can tell the differences. But by this time, it's too late. The roots are already intertwined. And so even though the farmer's servants offer to pick out the weeds one by one, the master says no, uh, because this would in fact hurt the crop even more. Instead, he encourages a waiting game, divine patience, whereby the good seed can still reach full maturity, but which will involve a time of final judgment, of purging, uh, when the weeds are destroyed with fire. I want to bring out uh, just four points from this last parable. I'm going to talk about the church as the kingdom. Uh, we'll acknowledge that there is an enemy. Uh, we'll be reminded to love God's church and we'll praise God for his patience. The church as the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Uh, what is it is such a, uh, such a simple question with a really uh, slippery answer for me. Um, and the more I study, the, the less, uh, and this is a bit of how my mind works as well, the less easy I find it to really nail it down in a simple, uh, concise statement. Jesus, you know, sometimes says, even in the first two parables we read today, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man 
who sowed wheat. And then the next one, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. So in one instance, it's the man, you know, is the reference point. In one instance, it's the wheat. He he plays around with metaphors and figurative language. And as I've said before, I I believe in large part, this concept of the kingdom of God is is a metaphor that Jesus employs because that was, uh, that was the language, that was uh, the cultural environment of the, of the people he was speaking to. And so the kingdom itself, in many ways, is a metaphor. It's a pretty good one. It's a very realistic one. Uh, we recognise that God is, uh, is sovereign. Uh, he has something like, in a, a worldly sense, what we would call majesty, absolute authority. Uh, and so he is... Uh, king is a really good word for what he is. Also father by the way, uh, and friend in, in other passages. And so, uh, so we have this kingdom. Now, as a younger Christian reading through uh, these passages, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, where he calls the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven, I had this habit of reading kingdom of heaven, well, that equals heaven. Uh, this equals, you know, something like what I've seen in the comic strips of, you know, a, a cloudy place with harps and angels and, uh, and eternal bliss going on into eternity. That clearly does not work in this instance uh, because, the, because Jesus is describing a kingdom with flaws, uh, with sinners, with wicked ones, uh, with an ongoing influence of evil, uh, even trying to undermine and sabotage it. And so a really simple answer to what is the kingdom of God is to say the church. That answer works most of the time, not all the time. Uh, most of the time. For example, uh, John the Baptist says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus followed up with, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. doesn't quite work to say, repent, the church is on its way. It, just, it feels weird, it doesn't work. Uh, but uh, but we, we do see a lot of similarities in the way the church and the kingdom is. For example, uh, as Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, we get two pictures. We get the picture of a kingdom that is now, And the kingdom that is now is imperfect. It is a work in progress. Uh, And we have a kingdom also that is not yet. A kingdom that is yet to come. A kingdom that will be perfected and glorious and will never be overcome. And we see something similar in the way the church is presented. Uh, And by the way, when I say church, uh, in a sermon, I'm almost never talking about EPC. Uh, or, or a church like that. I'm talking about uh, God's church, his gathering, his collection of saints and Christians through all generations, all times, all nations. We see something similar in the church. We see uh, a body of God's people, people who acknowledge God as their king or Lord and saviour. Uh, we are God's kingdom, his people. But we are an imperfect reality and we all know it. But God speaks of his people as, as an unfinished product, uh, something that will be perfected, that will bring him maximum glory and who will be, in time, uh, you and I, made to be just like Jesus, uh, in, uh, not equal to him in majesty, but like him in perfection uh, and with him in his glory. The church as the kingdom works pretty well. Uh, and it works really well. Uh, in this parable. Uh, uh, We see uh, the imperfections in the kingdom as we see the imperfections in the church. The second point is that there is an enemy. There really is an enemy. It's not just, you know, a mistake 
or a failing. Uh, although there's plenty of mistakes, and we all know there's plenty of failings. But there is an enemy. There is external, an external influence. There is, in fact, another kingdom, a ruler of another enemy kingdom who would sabotage God's efforts on earth. Jesus, the Bible, presents this enemy as the devil. There is a spiritual battle going on. Now, that doesn't mean we can uh, outsource all our own guilt and our own mistakes and say, well, the devil made me do it and, you know, the, the, you know the other influences, it's not my fault. Uh, we are still expected to take total responsibility for uh, the sin that we fall into and the mistakes that we make. But there is an enemy uh, and we mustn't forget it. I talked more on that last week, by the way. The third point in this is that, gee, shouldn't we love God's church? Shouldn't we love it? warts and all. Not necessarily the warts, but with the warts. A really bad, a really bad way to apply this passage would be, oh gee, look, God has established a kingdom, something like a church uh, on earth, uh, and there's bad things happening in it, well then my take home from that would be to abandon the project of church, uh, to move myself outside of uh, God's kingdom and meeting with God's people. Because this is a church that clearly has God's blessing, his love, his care and attention, initiated and instituted by God uh, and, and, and a promise of perfection and purity down the track. This is God's church. The kingdom is his. His people are his. And the people who aren't his, that exist among us, well, that's not entirely up to us to decide who they are and who they're not. It is our job still to love his kingdom, to trust his process uh, and to love our brothers and sisters. Now, that's not to say, uh, by the way, that, uh, you know, um, that we should uh, just let everything go. Um, not, uh, for example, rebuke one another, uh, not call out sin when we see it. It's not to say any of that. Uh, in fact, in other passages, uh, Jesus and the apostles are very clear uh, that we, uh, we need to give attention to the church. We need to be weeding out sin in our own lives and we need to be calling out and encouraging our brothers and sisters. We should even be, in extreme cases, exercising discipline and authority over people. Uh, remember, this, uh, this passage is, is taking a backward, broad step to... Uh, uh, broad view of the kingdom to say yes there's sin and evil uh, and uh, and it's not saying that no nothing must be done about it things ought to be done about it but it's saying in the end in the end all will be resolved finally i would simply say uh, that in light of these parables in light of god's work in the kingdom we ought to be praising god for his patience uh, we ought to trust his process. Stand by the church. Don't make excuses for the church. Uh, don't, uh, don't make excuses for your own sin. We should be critical at times when we need to be critical. But we should be pretty thankful that we have a God who doesn't abandon us each time we fail. Uh, and he doesn't abandon his church. He doesn't abandon his project of growing his people 
uh, and growing his kingdom and his influence on earth. Uh, we should be thankful for that even in the evidence, uh, you know, in micro, just in our own lives as individuals. Although this is a passage about uh, a big picture, uh, we see a similar thing in our own lives. Uh, you, know, you see one little uh, weed spring up in your life, God doesn't go, right, person gone, strike him down. For each of us, and probably some of us are really painfully aware of this, uh, his long-suffering patience, his love and mercy uh, which never ceases, his grace which is to the praise of his glory. Uh, We ought to be thankful uh, for a God who is patient. Don't despise a God who lets the weeds grow up. Trust his process, trust his sovereignty and thank him for his patience with us and with a world uh, that would otherwise uh, be entirely doomed to destruction. Let's pray. God, you are so patient. Uh, Even as we think of our own lives, we are in awe that you have stuck with us. Uh, You are so good. Uh, Your love has been tested uh, and has been proved uh, that you are uh, pure grace, pure mercy. Uh, We thank you that you have stuck with us. Uh, We thank you that you work on us. We thank you uh, that uh, for those of us who are your children, uh, there is uh, a glory that awaits. Lord, we thank you for your love and care over the church. Help us to do our bit. Help us to be faithful, uh, to uh, weed out sin in our own lives, to uh, call out sin and encourage holiness in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Uh, help the elders in our church to, uh, to display proper authority within the church. But Father, for all of us, as we take a step back and look at the big picture, uh, give us confidence that you work, always are at work, uh, to fulfil your promises, uh, to keep your promises and to fulfil your vision uh, for a kingdom, even a church, uh, a bride, uh, that is pure uh, and glorious uh, and that, uh, that honours you as we should. Father, we uh, have been reminded again that, uh, that as a kingdom, uh, there is an enemy kingdom. You as king have an enemy uh, prince or ruler. Father, we pray that uh, as we've been reminded of, uh, of the secret things and the small things that bear much fruit down the track, we pray that you will help us to be people who uh, don't despise the, uh, the small and simple and private disciplines of prayer. Uh, help us to be a people who, uh, who present our requests to you, uh, who pray uh, with a big heart, your kingdom come. Father, we thank you Uh, for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that uh, he modelled your kingdom, uh, not only in in the message that he gave, but also uh, in his method and and also in his life. Uh, He was small, insignificant, despised. Uh, He was buried and he rose again uh, and he will come again. And we pray with uh, eagerness and longing for uh, that final glory. We pray in his name. Amen.